Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. When it comes to international politics, there are a couple of themes that are coming up perpetually in our daily show in terms of the impact of the pandemic on international politics. Uh, the first is the way in which the pandemic might shift the global balance of power between the United States and China. And the second issue is whether or not uh, the pandemic will strengthen or undermine the, the new strongmen, both in democracies and in authoritarian systems around the world. One guy who's very well equipped to answer both these questions is Gideon Rackman. Gideon is the uh, London-based chief foreign affairs columnist of the Financial Times. His last book was Easternization, War and Peace in the Pandemic. Uh, Gideon, what's the view from London in terms of the way in which the pandemic is compounding what you call Easternization? Well, look, I think for the moment, everybody is very, very internally focused, um, partly because we can't travel, you know, um, and, but also because we're all facing national emergencies, which are taking slightly different shapes. But I think that, you know, even before the pandemic hit, there was a kind of uh, a rather belated realisation in the UK and in Europe as a whole that the rise of China posed all sorts of questions about geopolitics. Now, that may seem incredibly naive that people haven't thought about that. But, you know, the US, because it's a superpower and has always been on the alert for potential challenges, was thinking about what the rise of China meant for, for a while. Countries like Australia, India, which were much closer to hand, had thought about what this meant. In Britain, I think it was only really coming into focus uh, in the past year with the debate about Huawei uh, and should we allow a Chinese telecoms firm to build our 5G network. Um, but now the pandemic has arrived. In a funny way, it has sharpened the debate, uh, even in Europe, because um, obviously it originated in China. And so the nature of the Chinese government and what it means uh, to have a more powerful China, uh, whether Chinese authoritarianism actually does affect us in indirect ways, for example, if they mishandled the pandemic. All of that is is um, becoming a much kind of hotter topic of conversation. There's been a, a group of conservative MPs in, in Johnson, Boris Johnson's own party who formed a group calling for a rethink on uh, relations with China. But equally, uh, you know, if you look at the performance of President Trump, the idea that one can trust the United States, um, both in terms of its judgment on policy and as a reliable partner at times of crisis, has been undermined again. So it's not all going one way at all. Do you think that the pandemic, though, is um, underlining the efficiency of the Chinese model, of a, of a more uh, statist model, which 
could be more or less authoritarian, whether it's China or Singapore or Korea, uh, in contrast to the Anglo-Saxon model of decentralization and a state which doesn't seem to interfere too much in people's lives? Well, that's certainly how China will spin it. And I think that there is, you know, we're at the early stages of, of how we interpret this. And there is a, a case to be made for that. But but obviously, there's a counter case. Let, let's go with that first, which is that an authoritarian system um, meant that crucial weeks were lost because people didn't want to bring bad news to Xi Jinping. There was the archetypal case of the doctor in Wuhan who's tried to raise the alarm and who got a, an intimidating visit by the local Communist Party, uh, told to shut up, sign a retraction, later died. So that's not an advert for the virtues of authoritarianism in dealing with that. And I think the Chinese government has been trying to recover ground from that more or less ever since. However, uh, even if you account for the fact that a lot of this is propaganda, they do have a case that can be made, which is that um, they were able to impose a lockdown once they got the idea of what was happening uh, very thoroughly. They were able to cut off uh, Wuhan, uh, to close schools in Shanghai and, and so on uh, across the country, and to get a grip on this epidemic uh, quite fast, so that if we believe the Chinese figures, and I think we believe them to some extent, uh, you know, they they although it started there, and they took a while to get a handle on it, their mortality and the number of people who die will end up being, uh, uh, you know, unless there's a significant second wave, much lower than than in Europe and in, than in the United States. So that in this very specific circumstances, the ability to act in an authoritarian manner, plus the efficiency of surveillance and of the state uh, was, was a plus. Um, but I think, uh, you know, whether that model is extendable outside um, of their very specific system is, is questionable. Whether we'd even want it to be uh, is, is questionable. Uh, Kishore Mababani, the uh, Singapore-based uh, writer who I think you've interviewed for your podcast show, has just written a book about the rise of China, argues that the pandemic has revealed the fundamental dysfunctionality of the American system. Uh, I talked earlier in the week also to Soli Ozel from Istanbul, another very distinguished international political analyst who pretty much agreed with that. What's your position on what the Trump administration's mishandling, if, if that's fair, of the pandemic reveals about not so much Trump himself or the Republican Party, but the American system itself? Well, I think it's, um, it's an important question you, you raise by implication, which is, can one separate Trump from the American system? Because I think defenders of the American system would say, well, look, it's just hit at an incredibly unfortunate moment when we have this highly dysfunctional president in the White House. If you had a normal president, uh, you know, an Obama or even a George W. Bush, uh, you would have had a higher level of preparation. They wouldn't, for example, have disbanded the NSC's pandemic preparation uh, group. Uh, they would have reacted um, much more rationally and much more quickly. So it's not really America, it's Trump. Uh, but I think you can, you can make the argument 
that, well, you know, Trump is a product of the system, that America has, uh, he's not president entirely by accident. Uh, a large part of the Republican Party has rallied behind him. Uh, there is a kind of streak of irrationality uh, and partisan politics in American public life, as well as the other things that pre-existed Trump, pre-existing conditions, if you like, uh, such as the uh, fractured nature of the system, which is meant to prevent, um, you know, a, a very powerful response, uh, the checks and balances, uh, the lack of a universal healthcare system. All of those, I think, are things that were intrinsic to the United States before Trump. Um, but I think the fact that Trump is president uh, does matter a great deal um, and has mattered. Uh, it's really not been a help. But uh, so, so I think it's, there's no doubt that America's had a bad crisis so far, a bad crisis in terms of its international image. And also in its, its, its almost um, deliberate resignation from international leadership. I remember very early on, uh, talking to a, you know, actually a former head of Britain's intelligence services who said, look, in any normal crisis, by now you would have expected the White House to have taken the lead internationally, to have organized summits, to have asserted American leadership. And Trump just is not interested in that or not capable of that. And Trump's attacks on international organizations like the WHO and, and the UN, do these have long-term implications, or if he is indeed voted out in November, will it just be a blip, a, a footnote to history, this kind of one-term crazy guy who who happened by a series of bizarre coincidences to come to power, and then everything goes back to normal with Biden, and America once again becomes the, 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 the leader, not only of the so-called free world, but of, 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 of the international order. I don't think it'll ever go back, or, or not for some time, uh, to completely as it was, in which everyone just sort of says, oh, we've had four years of Trump, that was really weird, now let's just forget about it. I don't think that can happen. Uh, I think whatever happens, the United States will always be the country that elected Donald Trump as president, in the sense that there'll always be a sense that, uh, you know, if, if not Trump himself, a similar figure could be produced, uh, that it said something about the the deep, not just the deep divisions within the United States, but the streak of deep irrationality out there and of uh, xenophobia and of um, destabilized, it's a destabilized polity, something that can produce a president like Trump, uh, and people won't forget that. That said, I think that there is a yearning for American leadership, uh, even in Europe, you know, which at times is, is bridled at the idea of American leadership. I think they've really felt the lack of it. Uh, so that if you had a normal president, um, a Biden, um, then I think people would look to Washington, not least because of the thing we were discussing earlier. It's not like people are yearning to be led by Beijing. They look at China and they see an authoritarian, scary system, highly nationalistic, uh, which has its virtues, but also has very obvious vices. So they would like, you know, uh, some kind of, coordinated response, at least amongst democracies. And if Trump had been a more adept president, a president who hadn't been at times as angered by Germany as by China, I think he would have found it really quite easy to lead a, uh, a relatively united Western response to the, some of the questions raised by Chinese authoritarianism 
you know, to give the man a little bit of credit, he was, uh, albeit, uh, although I don't approve of the policies, all of the policies he adopted, he did signal that there was been a shift in uh, the West and America's approach to China that, and a lot of people have now followed in his wake, even people like Kurt Campbell, who was uh, associate, you know, assistant editor for Asia under Obama, has said, yeah, you know, we got something was wrong, we have been too naive. So in a sense, the world was ready for a shift in approach to China. It's just that Trump's approach was so over the top and so aggressive also to European allies uh, that it was not, he wasn't capable of doing this in a way that America led the world rather than confronted the world. But a more subtle president, I think, could do it. It's interesting that you talk about Trump in the past. There may be some Freudian uh, Freud, Freudian giveaway there, Gideon. Gideon, one of, one of your one of your interesting uh, columns this month was entitled "How Strongmen Leaders Will Exploit the Crisis." I know you're writing a book called "The Rise of the Strong Man," which I, I know you started before the pandemic. In this book, which I know you're in the middle of writing. Is there going to be a chapter, do you think, on the pandemic? Will that be the the straw that broke the democratic back? The pandemic? Um, sorry, Andrew, you broke up a bit there, but I think I've got the sense of the question, uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and answer. Um, look, uh, it's a bit of a cop-up, but it is true. It's too soon to tell. And I think you get um, varying indications on this. Um, to be honest, I'm a little bit pessimistic because I think generally things that, uh, events that A, make people poorer and more frightened, uh, tend to play into the hands of, of uh, strongman leaders, whether that's in a authoritarian context or in the democratic context, as in the United States, or, uh, you know, I don't know whether Hungary is still a democracy, but it once was, um, where, where leaders can say, look, you have to give me emergency powers now because... Uh, we're in a difficult situation, and uh, and that's certainly what's happened in Hungary with Viktor Orban, where uh, he has got the parliament to give him emergency decree powers. And in normal circumstances, that might not have happened. And in normal circumstances, he probably would have had a much stronger reaction from the rest of the European Union. But in this particular uh, emergency, it looks like Orban's got away with it. And I think there will be others who try to do that. Um, in, in an authority, in a context of countries that are already authoritarian, uh, you can see China using the, uh, the current distracted state of the world to round up a lot of the democracy activists in, uh, in Hong Kong and also perhaps to trial new forms of surveillance. Uh, because if you say to people, well, for public health reasons, we have to know exactly where you are, who you've been meeting. And we're going to use new apps on your phone to enable us to do that. Well, who's to say that that uh, kind of technology once deployed will ever be withdrawn? Um, this is something, incidentally, that Europeans are also wrestling with. Uh, how, do, how do we do that? But, but at least there is some debate uh, in the European Union about, about that. Uh, but on the slightly brighter side, I think there's also been several examples of authoritarian leaders who mishap, not authoritarian, uh, some of them authoritarian, but certainly leaders who've used the strongman style, uh, if I can uh, say that, and I, just uh, for the purposes of definition, in a democracy, I think that would mean somebody who tends to 
attack the elites, uh, use that as part of his political uh, purchase uh, and shtick, and also somebody who claims a direct relationship with the people and tends to express kind of contempt for democratic institutions. Some of those uh, have been stumbling. The most obvious example is Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, who is often labelled as the tropical Trump, been very explicit in his admiration for Trump's style of politics, has been nostalgic for the era when Brazil was uh, ruled by a military dictatorship, which is his youth, um, but has had a bad crisis uh, because he, first of all, was very dismissive of the uh, of of the pandemic and of its effects, said Brazilians shouldn't uh, treat it like kids should stand up to it like men, and has been roundly condemned uh, in the press for potentially leading Brazil into a public health disaster, and has in the past week seen a really key figure in his government, the Justice Minister Sergio Moro, resign, albeit not because of his handling of the pandemic. So uh, although I think the pandemic creates conditions that unfortunately are favourable to strongman politics, they may also lead some of these uh, leaders who are kind of often dismissive of science and technocracy into making political blunders that at least in democracies undermine them. Bolsonaro is the obvious example, but actually the big issue is Trump. Uh, has Trump's mishandling of this pandemic allied to the checks and balances of the United States that would, we hope, prevent him acquiring emergency powers? Might actually the pandemic be the nail in the coffin of of the Trump uh, style of government and of Trump's period as president. So there may be some good news. And one other piece of good news that you noted uh, in your last column for the Financial Times was the impact of the pandemic on wars. You suggested that uh, the, the, the pandemic might actually reduce the number of wars in 2020. What's going on in the uh, on the on the war front, Gideon, when it comes to the pandemic? Well, there are a great many of them, and uh, you know, I've discovered uh, through trial and error, writing for the Financial Times, that I'm afraid, and I don't really exempt myself from this, but people in relatively comfortable developed nations don't particularly want to read about the war in Yemen or the the war even in Syria or Libya. These are don't know how far off the conflicts are, but they. They don't really impinge much on people's lives, but they, uh, if you're not not living them, uh, if you're in the US or the UK, certainly. But, um, you know, they've had a terrible toll. Uh, I think 100,000 people have died in Yemen, many more than that in Syria. Uh, and yet there, there's a ray of hope. I don't want to overstate it. But firstly, um, you know, wars, uh, so pandemics may actually make wars harder to, to conduct in the long run if, if fighters get ill or just societies have other things on their mind. But there's been quite an imaginative um, response by the United Nations, by Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General in particular. And it's worth you know, giving him a bit of credit because he's generally uh, been regarded by professional UN watchers as a slightly underwhelming Secretary General. But this time around, uh, he has issued a call for a global ceasefire saying that, you know, pointing out really, that how the hell are you going to get uh, medical supplies, masks, ventilators into war zones? Uh, but but if you don't, you have entire populations at enormous risk if the disease takes hold. Um, 
And you might think that this sounds like a kind of appeal that was more or less destined to get nowhere. I mean, why should people listen to him? But there have been some evidence, albeit often one-sided, that, that, that there are people who are paying attention. Uh, the Kurdish army in Syria, which is uh, not inconsiderable, it's the largest, um, the largest non-state army in the world, has called a ceasefire, explicitly citing the Guterres appeal. Uh, now, it's, obviously, there are many other armies in Syria, but people who are involved in that peacemaking process say that uh, actually some of the jihadist armies and even the Assad government have begun to pay a bit of interest to this. The one that they're all, even more than Syria, holding out hope for is Yemen, where the Saudi government has called a ceasefire and renewed a ceasefire, uh, again, citing the Guterres appeal for a global ceasefire. Now, this isn't because they've suddenly become nice guys and had a change of heart, but it may be because the conflict is not going well for them uh, and they actually can see that COVID-19 is a threat uh, to their society. So it might be convenient to hop on this uh, bus of a global ceasefire appeal and see if it can, can help them. And uh, the certainly the UN peace effort in Yemen, which has been struggling, uh, has got a bit more impetus behind it. And I think they're hoping to get the Houthi rebels also to to take part in this global ceasefire. And Yemen would certainly be the big prize. Finally, Gideon, uh, you're a, an old-time uh, foreign, foreign correspondent stuck now in London. A couple of suggestions on books that you've been reading or people might read during the crisis to keep them not only entertained but enlightened about the world. Okay, I'll give you a couple that I uh, easy enough to recommend because they're sitting in my eyeline on my desk, both of which I've enjoyed. Um, one is, and they're kind of relevant to the, um, our discussion, actually. One is Frank Decotta's How to Be a Dictator. Um, he's uh, really one of the preeminent historians of China and of Maoism. And he wrote, uh, I thought, a really fun mm. book, even though it's not a very fun topic. But it's, it's a really readable because it's broken up into chapters. So as well as the obvious ones like Hitler and Mussolini and Mao. You also have Kim Jong-un, Papa Doc Duvalier in Haiti. And it's, it's, it's a good read and it's thought-provoking. A second one on my desk uh, is Ivan Krastev and Stephen Holmes's book, The Light That Failed, which is about why did hopes for liberal democracy uh, take a, a wrong turn in recent years? And it, it looks at three particular case studies Eastern Europe, Russia, and the United States, and sees if there are any comparisons to be drawn. And then what I'm actually reading for relaxation is a monster book on uh, British history uh, called, uh, I think it's called The English and Their History by Robert Toombs, uh, which is kind of not about, obviously, about the modern world. I just finished the chapter on the Plantagenists. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good read, actually. If, and it um, does have some plague relevant uh, literature because I just uh, the Black Death was a major event during the Plantagenets and incidentally they didn't have a lockdown they just insisted that everyone keep working and half the population of Britain died even worse than Trump yeah 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 absolutely I guess uh, yeah they but but uh, if you want a bright side there was a positive social change out of the Black Death uh, I, you have to have pretty positive social change to make up for losing half your population but uh, it was essentially um, it helped to end feudalism and, and serfdom because uh, labor was so short after that that uh, people were able to start charging for their labor to start ignoring all sorts of uh, rules for serfdom beforehand. 
So uh, these things can have unpredictable consequences. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.